from Kurtco Media. Coming up on Wines That Matter. And I believe that the Napa Valley can make Cabernet Sauvignon as well or better than anybody in, in the world. And so why not embrace that? Right. Hi, welcome to Wines That Matter Napa Valley. I'm Kelly White. I'm Sarah Bray. And we run the wine center in the beautiful Meadowood Napa Valley. During the course of this series, we'll be interviewing leading figures in the Napa Valley wine community, the people behind the wines that matter, wines that convey a sense of the place from which they come. For each episode, we have asked our guests to share with us a wine or wines that matter to them, wines that inspire them or represent a pivotal moment in their career, wines that keep them going or that best represent their vision. This isn't education, it's a conversation. We hope that you will come visit us in Napa Valley, but if you can't, We hope that this podcast brings alive the spirit of this special place, its people, and its wines. Welcome to Wines That Matter with Kathy Corison. Kathy, we're so excited to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. I know that we just popped the cork on one of your wines. Would you tell us what bottle you've opened and why you brought it? Well, I brought the 19... Cabernet, Corazon Napa Valley Cabernet, which is the wine that I established the label with 36 years ago. Didn't have a vineyard, didn't have a winery, but I had this wine inside of me that needed to get out, and I knew where I needed to go to get the grapes. When you say it was already in your head, what what were you envisioning? I love the wines of the world. I love wine, basically. And the wines I love have a life force. They have a vibration that's tied somewhat to the acidity, but you can't make grapes overripe and make an overripe wine and add acid back and get that life back. And specifically for Napa Valley Cabernet, I'm looking to make a wine that is both powerful and elegant. Cabernet is going to be powerful no matter what you do, but it's way more interesting to me at the intersection of elegance. They sound like opposites, but they can be in the same glass at the same time. And that's what I've been chasing my entire adult life. Well, and I think that's what you've become known for, right? Yeah, fashion comes and fashion goes in winemaking and wine styles, but I believe my job is to let those vineyards speak. And I went there because I expected them to make this Cabernet that's both powerful and elegant. So it's a circular logic in a way. I focus on one little tiny corner of the world, and that is Benchland. It used to be called the Rutherford Bench before AVAs. It's a very little tiny corner of the world. Napa Valley in general makes great Cabernets because it's warm enough to get Cabernet ripe reliably, but it's also cold at night, so we keep good natural acidity and we make lots of color. But the Benchland is, a partic- I believe, a particularly special place to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. The tannins, if we grow the grapes right, manage the canopies well, the tannins come into the winery feeling like velvet. And uh, there's nothing I can do to surgically remove bad tannin and leave good tannins. So it has to come into the winery with that beautiful, luscious tannin. And it's also a part of the world that is capable of growing Cabernet that has a, the full range of Cabernet flavors, all the way from the red and blue to the purple and black. So cherries, blueberries, cassis blackberries, you know, and they can all be in the same glass at the same time, right? Yeah, I think that's called complexity, right? Exactly. <laughs> One of the hallmarks of exactly. great wine. Yeah. Well, did you just have a psychic vision that led you to this place or did you have experience no. working with Benchland fruit? 
No, it was experience working with Benchland Fruit. I was at Chapelet for all the 80s, and there were a couple of serious drought years where we came down to the valley floor to buy some Cabernet, even though Chapelet is an estate place. So I had made a little bit of wine from the Benchland myself, but I also had tasted the wines, beautiful wines made historically in the Napa Valley. And it's not a coincidence that most of the famous vineyards come from the Rutherford Bench, which is alluvial fans coming out of the, the hills and loamy soils that hold moisture for when the vines need it in the spring and into the summer. But very gravelly, I could mine my vineyards for gravel. I'm sitting here wondering how successful a podcast would be if it was just three people silently enjoying the wine <laughs> for 45 minutes, because that's what I want that's, to do. That would be a good one for us. I mentioned the red and blue end of the Cabernet Sauvignon flavor spectrum. That's the end that we have to be sure and pick early enough to capture. And for me, that's what turns into the prettiness. It turns into the floral perfume that these wines develop over time. What about the color green? The green signature that can be in Cabernet, is that something that you flirt with at all? or No. In fact, I spend all my time out in the vineyard working on canopy management because my whole goal is to be able to pick fully ripe Cabernet Sauvignon with no greenness and fully lignified seeds, which helps protect the tannin profile because it cordons off the harsh tannins and leaves us with those beautiful velvety skin tannins. So how are you walking that line? You keep mentioning it all the time in the vineyard, and I know this time of year we're in March and cover crops are reaching high into the, the vines. What, what are you doing kind of year-round to think about the, the wine and the glass that we're tasting now? We've farmed the vineyard, Kronos Vineyard, organically now for more than a quarter of a century. And so the soils are wildly alive. We amend with compost every year after picking, and then we seed a leguminous cover crop. So I haven't fertilized that vineyard for almost oh, a quarter great. century. Right now, we just finished pruning, and that's our first swing at, at balancing the way the vine grows and the way it fruits. And then we'll spend all the way until veraison, really, and past managing the canopy. And that's all about getting the right amount of air and light into the fruit. It's hot in the Napa Valley, so we've got to protect the grapes from sunburn, but we also need to get the right amount of air and light in for flavor development, color development, seed lignification. And part of the goal of this power and elegance thing is to have moderate alcohols. The alcohols are always under 14, 14 or under. I've never de-alcoholized a wine in my life. So I need to pick those grapes with a sugar level that will result in moderate alcohol. Well, as someone who enjoys to drink in quantity, I want to thank you yeah. <laughs> for that because I prefer to drink wine throughout the course of the meal, maybe even starting with the cooking. And so if I open a wine that's too high alcohol, that becomes a burden. And you can't even think about working after dinner. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No. But I'm interested to know, so this is the 2019 Vintage, as you said, you've been at this for a while, and I know you well enough, I think, to know that you have a natural humility, but surely you've got to take a few moments to pat yourself on the back. I mean, how do you, how do you feel tasting this wine and thinking, rewinding through all of those vintages that got you here? Well, it's extremely gratifying to have people enjoy the wine. That's the most rewarding thing. I can't drink it all. So. <laughs> 
So it, it feels wonderful. It, another thing I'm very grateful for is that I've had, starting at Chapelet, I had 10 vintages working with the same vineyards. Now I've got 35, 36 vintages working on 37, working with the same vineyards. And that's a gift as a winemaker to get to know the vineyards that well. Well, speaking of vineyards, what's this second wine that you brought? That's the Sun Basket, and that is our second single vineyard estate wine. That's a vineyard that I sourced for more than 30 years through three different owners before we had the amazing good fortune, thank you, William Martin, my husband, to make it happen. But we had the amazing good fortune to purchase this vineyard in 2015, having bought the grapes for more than 30 years. So it was always one of my favorite vineyards, and it's so much fun to now let it be able to come out and play. It's still a component of the Napa, so it's, I think, a great, truly great vineyard, and very different than Kronos. What is it that you find, both in that vineyard and in other wines that you've tasted around the world, that draws you to kind of that older vine character, and and how would you define that? I think I see it in the vineyard more than anything. Those old ladies are so wise. They just sail through heat spells. St. George helps. It's very deeply rooted. But the age of the vine, they're just, they're wise. That translates into amazing concentration. It's a yin and yang of concentration, but also a brightness from high natural acidity and again, those those velvety tannins. So it's big and full-bodied, but it's also elegant and lively as well. That's a very interesting dance that we do here, this idea of that old vines have wisdom, that they potentially are more set up to survive climate chaos, and yet their production decreases, which makes them less attractive to accountants. Oh, quarterly statement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... I never got that memo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, you have such an incredible career and resume. And I love to hear you talk about your journey through wine. But I'm interested in what happens when you leave the winery at night. What's your relationship with these wines? Are you opening these wines every night for dinner? What are you eating? Are you sharing them with your daughters? Well, first of all, I can't imagine dinner without wine. (laughs) But I don't drink our wines at home. Because my winemaking is very much informed by the wines of the world, and it continues to be. I finally made it to La Palais in New York last week, and people say, what are you doing here? And there's no question in my mind that the wines of Burgundy inform my winemaking. Not the same flavors, but if, if you're talking about intensity, if you're talking about aromatics, if you're talking about natural acidity. Life force. Brightness, life force. There's so many wines that I need to taste that I can't get to them all. And in fact, I'm very fortunate that for as long as we've been married, and it's now more than 30 years, William pulls a bottle of wine blind for me every night. Oh, that's amazing. It's made me a much better taster. Um, There are four questions. It's what's the variety? Where did it come from? What's the vintage? And do you like it? And then it's revealed. And how do you do? How do you score? Well, anybody that's been around blind tasting knows how hard that is to do, <laughs> yeah. but I do pretty well. So is yeah. this is wine a passion that you and your husband share? Absolutely. He he loved wine and food before we met. Can you tell the story of how you did meet? We met in Boston. I was selling my very first wine in 1990, and I had been to the 
Oregon Shakespeare Festival the summer prior and took a week-long course that was mostly uh, school teachers were the, were the students. And most of them were quite a bit older than I was. This was a long time ago. And I, I met the only other young person, Connie, and she taught theater and literature at the high school level in Boston. And she and William were housemates. I was selling my very first vintage, and it wouldn't be like me to stay in someone else in somebody's house, except that it was on my own nickel for the first time. Right. This, this, this <laughs> travel, and so I stayed in their third bedroom, and that's where I met William. And Connie was involved in opening a community theater production that weekend, and couldn't spend much time with me. And she's not a food and wine person, but William, on the other hand, had already loved food and wine and knew the restaurants of Boston. And You had a companion. Yeah. I haven't been in the upstairs of your winery in a while, but I remember going there years ago, honestly, maybe a decade ago, and seeing a little stage and some decorations. That was my two daughters, who are now in their 20s, when they were in first through sixth grade, they attended a small Montessori-based one-room school. And for the years they were in that school, all their productions were done up there. We turned it into a stage and because there's a little bit of a rise. And so there would be 50 to 100 little brothers and grandmothers out watching the programs. And oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned your daughters now in their 20s. Are they expressing any interest in, in joining you in the business? Much to our delight and surprise, the summer of 2019, William had got up the guts to ask them if they might be interested in coming into the business sometime in the next 10 years or so. They, he was trying to keep it gentle. And <laughs> much to our delight and surprise, they both said yes. This is before wow. COVID. This is the vintage that we're having now, too. Exactly. So that's quite special. Exactly. They were in New York City when the pandemic hit and they bailed in March of 2020, came home and they've been working at the winery ever since. One of them, the younger, Grace, is uh, now working full-time for the winery and has, has been for the last three years. As somebody that cares about Napa Valley, it makes me very emotional to hear that that your daughters might take over because I think you'll probably hopefully agree with me, but it's it's already such a feat to establish a successful small winery in Napa Valley, to keep it going for more than one generation is almost extraordinary now. I'm holding my breath, but I'm very, very hopeful and excited about it. Cheers to that. Yeah, yeah. Chin -chin. And I love the 19s. It was a nearly perfect vintage. There wasn't a single day over 100 degrees from Verasion to Peking and... It was so long and cool that we picked two weeks later than than average. Fabulous natural acidity, inky color, amazing aromatics already. I have to say, you are one of the only people that I've spoken to about vintage variation and characteristics in Napa Valley that said something, you said something a long time ago that really impacted me, where you had mentioned that when winemakers talk about a vintage, they focus on the heat spikes or the heat events. And for you, the cold snaps and the daily evening temperatures were as significant. 
And I thought that was really brilliant. And I've the longer I've lived with that information, I find it very revealing of something in you and that I think that you have a tendency to sort of see the opposite or the inverse mm. of what is obvious. And that's what makes your wine so subtle and compelling, I think. My favorite vintages are always the longest, coolest, as long as they get ripe at the end. And frankly, they always do and have, mm -hmm. even in 2011. I think it's our European heritage that makes ripening so important. Because historically, a lot of the fine wine growing regions of Europe were kind of marginal. In Bordeaux, they couldn't always get Cabernet Sauvignon ripe. So I think we kind of brought that with us the riper, the better, when here in the Napa Valley, that's not true for me. It's very easy to get too ripe here. Kelly and I talk a lot about this concept of maybe looking for the same kind of goal, this balance, this life force in a wine. But because you're working in a different climate, you have to make different kinds of decisions in the vineyard, in the winery, to achieve the same sort of end because you're working with riper fruit and all these other conditions. So many times winemakers from the Napa Valley have gone over to France, Bordeaux specifically. They come back with a beret on their head, and then they do <laughs> exactly what they saw in Bordeaux. There's, not, there's nothing similar about Bordeaux, except we can both generally get Cabernet Sauvignon ripe and make right. really good world-class wines out of it. But they're very, very different climates, different soils. Everything's different. So a lot of the vertical trellising you see today came out of Bordeaux. When we've learned now, no one trains strictly vertical anymore because there's just too much exposure in a hot climate to the sun. Right. Cabernet takes a lot of heat to get ripe, but we don't want sunburn and we don't want shrivel and we don't want overripeness. Honestly, you know, the California wine industry and Napa Valley wine industry is mature now, not just since the 1960s when it got back on its feet, but going way back to the earliest days in the late 1800s. And I think that we would all be really well serviced to sort of decouple from Europe a bit, not just in the way that we approach the farming like you were discussing, but also in the way we describe the wines. I totally agree. When I was buying at press, I would have producers come in to sell me wine and this used to drive me crazy, especially with Chardonnay. A lot of times they would say, this is my Burgundian style Chardonnay. And I would say, okay, well, what does that mean? And it could mean anything from that that was their more lower alcohol restrained style earlier pick that could have meant just that it was fermented in barrels. You could know, be it, malolactic. Right? Yeah, it, it really truly was almost nonsensical. And to the point where I thought it was, this is distracting and not actually informative. And, you know, it's it's kind of dismissive of our own personal frame of reference here. And I believe that the Napa Valley can make Cabernet Sauvignon as well or better than anybody in, in the world. And so why not embrace that? Right. And we've been doing it since the late 19th century. Right? Damn it. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, a couple of world wars and prohibition and, and a depression got in the way in the first half of the 20th century, but this this place was winning expositions in Europe in the late 19th century. Yeah, it's it's crazy. The Judgment of Paris, you know, was an echo of things that had already happened in a sense. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Kathy Corson. If you love great food and you love travel, 
you have got to check out the brand new MasterChef's miniseries of Travel That Matters. From Michelin-starred restaurants in Provence to strip mall Szechuan restaurants in LA and mole in the Mercados of Oaxaca, no one knows the top culinary destinations and secret spots like the world's best chefs. Yes, chef. Eat your way around the world with Top Chef alum Gregory Gourdet. I just love big, bold, spicy, dynamic food, and the food of Thailand has that all for me. Travel through the mountain towns of Italy with Chop Judge Amanda Freitag. Yes, it's all under the umbrella of Italy, but it's so different everywhere you go. Crisscross the globe with Iron Chef Marcus Samuelson. It would remind me of being in Sweden, but I was in awe. I was hooked. I was like, this is going to be a major part of my life. Hit the follow button and pack your appetite because the Travel That Matters MasterChef series is taking off soon. Welcome back to Wines That Matter with Kathy Corson today. Do you have certain areas in the world that you find your husband pulling out of the cellar more often than not because you have a lot of them? I have been on a Barolo jag for... I'll come over anytime. (laughs) It's not a jag anymore. It's been going up for 10 years. <laughs> so we drink a lot of wine from Piemonte. There's always a Mosel in our refrigerator. We drink a lot of bubbles, especially Champagne Brut Rosé. Mm. I hear acidity throughout all of that. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've been read a couple of articles about this idea of life force in wine. And more often than not, I hear it linked to sometimes acidity, but sometimes soil health. You mentioned organic farming. How important do you think that is to this concept of life force? Winemaking is a, is a continuum from the grapes, and we're really farming the soil when we're farming the grapes as organic farmers, all the way through to making the wines. And even in the bottle, they're arguably alive. I have believed in and been involved in organically farmed grapes for so long. I don't have a lot to compare it to. I made the wines for Ted Hall at Long Meadow Ranch, and he was organic from the very mm-hmm. beginning. I think it it may very well be key to my being able to ripen fully the Cabernet Sauvignon grapes and without any greenness and without the harsh tannins. And at, in an earlier picking window. Right, yeah. and lower sugars, which result in more moderate alcohols, Yeah, which is key to my my stylistic goals. I'm curious if your label speaks to any of this and, you know, what inspired Absolutely. And and the copy on the back label. That is a very old life symbol based on rain. It decorated a pot that was excavated from what is now the Middle East. And it's where Vitus vinifera evolved and people, humans, started to settle down and actually grow things in that fertile crescent. So very much so. And then there's an image on the top of the capsule, another very old life symbol, 7,000 years old again, based on a sprouting seed. Oh, wow. And how did you come across these symbols? I was designing the label with Freema Hillman, and I read a book by a woman archaeologist named Gimbutas, and she posited that the decorations on those Mesolithic and Neolithic pots and other things were based on an earth-based religion. Whether it's true or not, it resonates with me because 
everything in that bottle came from either the earth or the sky. I love that. Yes, Carl Sagan said we're all just star stuff, right? We are. And we don't add anything. We crush grapes. A living organism turns it into wine. It goes into wood, a tree, you know, and then it goes into a bottle that's melted sand, and we cork it with a bark of another tree. All of the nutrients are made available to the vines by the life in the soils. So after 26 or so years of organic farming, those soils are just teeming with life. Wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the sun basket that's in our glass, because we asked you specifically to bring wines that inspire you. And we've talked a little bit about this, but tell me why you brought this vineyard, this vintage. Well, the 19s are current. And I think I already mentioned, I think it was a nearly perfect vintage. And I love the wines. They're relatively forward at this stage, even though they're just released, they're very accessible. Although they're going to be very long-lived, like all the vintages, they'll be at least 30-year wines, probably 40 or 50. I brought the Sun Basket because the Sun Basket, I mentioned, leans more toward the brighter end of the fruit spectrum, so the cherries and blueberries. And it tends to be a little more fruit-driven, perhaps. And we hold the Kronos another whole year before we release it. Oh, It leans more in the purple and black end of things. It's more, I often call it brooding. Mm -hmm. I love the Sun Basket, but I also, it shows really nicely early. Just also the acidity. We keep talking about it, but it's mouthwatering. I wish we had food (laughs) at this table with us. Well, that's one of my missions is to keep the table in table wine. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Is that on a t-shirt yet? Yeah, What's happening? It should be. Yeah. <laughs> a little chorus and logo on the sleeve. That sounds great. Bless you. Is there any particular history to this vineyard? I know it's it's only been yours for a couple of years, although you've been working with it for much longer. But we've just been looking into that. And back in the 19th century, when they first started to grow grapes in the Napa Valley, that area was called Vineland. Oh. oh. And... St. Lena was has always been the center of winemaking. It's where wine tech, the wine tech group started way back with Andre Chelichev. And it's not called Sunny St. Lena for nothing. It's really good at getting Cabernet Sauvignon ripe. Right. So there's there is a long history. It was planted in 1971 by Leo Nockbauer, and the Nockbauers own that piece from the late 19th century. The house was built, I think, in 1910. It was probably prunes at one point, and it's been prunes, grapes, and walnuts for way more than 100 years. And what caused the family to finally sell to you? They actually didn't sell to us, and I don't know why, but they sold it to a gentleman in Bordeaux. Oh. There was an intermediate owner that we bought it from. But luckily for us, when we were in escrow, Leo Nockbauer was still alive, and he lived around the corner, and we interviewed him. And he was born in that house. He planted the vineyard oh my gosh. in 1971. Oh, He's the reason we know it's St. George Rootstock, and we know it when it was planted because he planted it. And he grew up in that house and always sold the grapes. So I don't really know why the Nockbauer family sold it, but the gentleman from France, that property was the very first piece in the Napa Valley denied a use permit. Oh, wow. Because 
they were going to knock down the old house. They were going to have water treatment ponds in the back. They were going to have a hundred parking places. All they cared about was the frontage, the highway frontage. And the neighbors and the county shut them down. And literally, it was the very first application ever denied a use permit. So they put it on the market and took their ball and went home, charging way too much money for it. And at the time, it was it was on the market for eight years. Wow. That would never happen today. No. We, when when it was originally put up for sale, we weren't in the market. I didn't think I would ever own a vineyard or have a winery. Um, but there came a time when my brand was mature. We were selling what we made and we were debt-free. And so William set off looking for bale gravelly loam between Rutherford and St. Helena <laughs> on the bench. I don't ask for much. <laughs> and lo and behold, it turns out that that property is bale gravelly loam. And we were told it was AXR1 and would need replanting. We were told the house was condemned. And so we that sounded like bare land to us. Yeah. So we put in a bare land price just on a wish and a prayer. And we're amazed when we were talking turkey within a week. You're talking about Kronos. I'm talking about Kronos Vineyard. Okay. It was, that's where we built the winery. Right. Kronos Vineyard was already there and already pretty old. What about the Sunbasket Vineyard? What What was the family that owned that? That's been owned by three different owners since I started to source those grapes 30 years ago. So it's a complete miracle that we were able to buy it. Mm-hmm. 30 years later. So it's it's been in every chorus and cabernet, but I didn't own the vineyard. Now now we own it, I farm it and it's single vineyard bottled. When you started Corson, you had no winery, you had no land. How many years of just bootstrapping it did you do before you you were able to purchase that property? That's not your home. Well, we purchased it in 1995, but I was still making wine as a custom client in other people's wineries. We built the winery breaking ground in 1999. And I don't think the contractors believed us until we drove up with the grapes, but we made wine there in 1999. No roof, no walls, no permanent power. (laughs) It was crazy. Generator? A very big diesel generator that was supposed to be there for three weeks, but it turned into more like three months. It was a very long, cool season. It got very cold there was no roof. So to get the wines to go through malolactic in barrel in the barrel room, oh, wow. William yeah, wrapped the entire barrel room in plastic and we ran propane heaters in there to get the malolactics to go. <laughs> My eyebrows just shot up. <laughs> That's incredible. And did you also go out there at night to spoon the barrels and cuddle them and keep them warm? <laughs> yes. That's why 99 tastes so good. Exactly. It's a fabulous ways. finish. Another really long, cool one. Luckily, because the grapes came in weeks later, they give us a little more of a chance. Do you feel like another young winemaker without existing capital could do now what you did then? No, not in the Napa Valley. But if I were coming out of school today, California is incredibly diverse. Climate, soils, I believe that you could grow, find a place to grow world-class almost anything somewhere in California. And that was probably what I... I would do. Well, and you didn't come from a winemaking family at all. No. My dad was an attorney. I grew up in suburban Southern California. (laughs) 
there's no explaining this. <laughs> when did when did you or what was the light bulb moment that you realized this is this it is was my life? Almost exactly fifty years ago. I was nineteen years old. I took a wine appreciation class at Pomona College where I was studying biology and from I was and it was taught by John John Hager. You guys might know him. He's still an important wine writer. He writes Riesling and Pinot Noir books. Mm-hmm. And he was the Anglo-Francophilic Chinese professor at Pomona College. Many hats. <laughs> you know, doing these these wine appreciation classes on the side. It was non-credit. I took that class. It grabbed me and ran with me, and I've never looked back. Two years later, I graduated. Two days later, I was in the Napa Valley. And Americans didn't care what they ate and drank back there. Women didn't make wine. There were only 30 wineries in the Napa Valley. Nothing made sense. What did your parents say? They were appalled. <laughs> <laughs> For a while. Yeah. I'll never forget. I was, I was an intern at Fremark Abbey in 1978, and I was shoveling out a tank the day they oh, arrived it's a, it's a and visited. Look. And my dad said, For this, you got a master's degree? <laughs> yeah, it's hmm? so physical. I, I was an athlete. I'm small, but I know more about leverage than most people will ever learn. And I've always wanted to stay really close to the wines, and that's meant I needed to be involved in a really small winery. So mm. it, it is. It's a lot of physical work. So prior to this, what were your dinners like growing up with your family? What was on the table? My father would never spend more than $8 for a bottle of wine, and he drank Gallo Hardy Burgundy, which was a little sweet. It wasn't. It was good wine. And it came in a gallon jug. And it was still wine on the table. And it was wine was on unusual. the table. It was really in college when I, f- I fell in food, in love with food and wine really at the same time. They're inseparable. Yeah. I, I can relate. I used to have a wine glass from the age of about 10 for my Coke or milk or whatever I had at the table because I loved the sophistication of the glass and all the people swirling. And my kids had wine on the table from the time they could sit up in a chair. And we would do the European one finger of wine and four fingers of water yeah. until Rose, the elder, was in middle school and I sitting across the table. And she says, Mom, could I just have the one finger of wine? <laughs> <laughs> and so from then on, they got just a little, they got a sip of wine. Yes. I'm excited for her own one finger brand label to come out. <laughs> so... Did your parents ever come around to drinking finer wine on the table? If someone else paid for it. <laughs> my father could afford wine. That wasn't the problem, but he just... He's a principal. It was a principal. He just... He even would chastise me for the price of my wine. And in that the early years, charging? it wasn't very much. Oh, it's wow. still not enough. It's still not enough. Yeah. I'm curious, Kathy, what makes a wine matter to you? Well, I talked a little bit about the life force thing. That's very key to me. But on top of it being delicious and you share it with friends and family and it makes food taste better and vice versa, it's a whole series of living systems that conspire to what's in the glass. And to me, that is very affirming and very rooting. I think the wines of the world that I love speak of both time and place. And wine is rare and in the ability to speak of both time and place, and then if it's age-worthy, to go forward into time still speaking of time and place. It's pretty magic. It's a little time capsule to thought processes and 
the person who made it, the trends that were happening, the health of the ecosystem. And it opens up all these doors to think about these topics in an interconnected way. It's really beautiful. Fine wine makes you think, mm-hmm. makes you feel. And what are some of the wines that matter to you? We've talked a lot about the Napa Valley, quite obviously. Oh, some of my favorites are, I love the wines of Piemonte, Barolo specifically, Barbaresco as well. Um, again, I love them for their their weight. They're, they're powerful, but they're also elegant. They're not big wines. They're, they have good natural acidity. They have a nicely grippy tannin. They're aromatic, all the things I love. Anywhere you look in the world, there are beautiful wines made. I, there's always a Mosul in our refrigerator, preferably a GG or a cabinet. I was going to ask, because the GG sort of has that same thing that you're talking about, that complexity and tension. Dry and tart, but, but yin and yang of being full-bodied but light and bright at the same time, which they sound like opposites, but they can be in the same glass at the same time. So Champagne Brut Rosé, same thing. I'd say Chorus in Napa Valley has a lot of those characteristics, yeah. well, I too. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been working on. How many years have you lived in Napa Valley, and what has made you really want to stay here and make wine here? Well, I moved here in 48 years ago, and I stay here because I believe we can make some of the best Cabernet Sauvignon in the world. And it's beautiful. I pinch myself. I'm curious what made you decide that Cabernet was going to be your grape? Because you really, that's the focus of Corison. I make Cabernet Sauvignon because I'm in the Napa Valley, period. So Napa came first, Cabernet came came second. And when I graduated from college 48 years ago, all the other regions in California were either just emerging or hadn't even started. So the choice was Sonoma or Napa. And at the time, Sonoma had been around longer, but there was more energy over here. There was more going on. It was exploding here in Napa. So right now in your tasting room, you're very generously pouring your 1999 Kronos for at least a few guests. Can you tell us a little bit about how your wines age and why you're showing that right now? I always knew that because I had tasted the wines that had been made here in the 20th century, I always knew they'd be long-lived, having sourced them from the Rutherford bench, but I didn't know how long-lived they would be. I used to say they were 20- or 30-year wines. Now the earliest vintages are just screaming past 30 years, and I don't really know how long-lived they're going to be. It's a combination of complexity, and there's a lot of tannin there. I've mentioned how how velvety it is, so it's not harshly tannic, but there's a lot of tannin there. There's a lot of color there. There's a lot of natural acidity. All of those things promote a long life. And it's important to me because I believe that these vineyards deserve to be made in a style that will have a long, interesting life because they're alive and they go through, they're like an interesting person. Mm -hmm. They go through ups and downs and, you know, the terrible twos at the beginning all the way through to their dotage, but they're interesting all along. They have ups and downs. Wines are just the same. Mm -hmm. So it's not as much about finding some magical peak or magical moment to taste a wine. For me, it's watching them live and breathe over time. Well, it's special, as Sarah said, that you actually open those for consumers, because I don't think a lot of consumers have exposure 
to aged Napa Cabernet? I think partly from my experience at Chapelet, where we had a really good library of older wines. Those wines are very long-lived as well. We've always had good libraries from the very beginning, even when it was impossible to afford it. I think that that's really important to convey to the listener because it's not a small investment on your part to hold wine back from market. No, in fact, it's very expensive. No, that's one of the hardest things about the wine business, especially Cabernet producers. What business person in their right mind would buy something that they couldn't sell for three to 40 years? It's nuts. It's in the barrel for two years, and we hold it for another year before we release it. If it's Kronos, we hold it for a second year before we release it. And then we hold libraries forever. I realized a few years ago that the wines I make today are going to outlive me by a lot. But your daughters will be there to enjoy I them. Hope so. Of course. And to keep it going. Yeah. And how amazing that a woman who's an icon for women in the wine industry happened to have two daughters who were taking over. I mean, that's so special. I specifically wanted daughters, and I was lucky enough. <laughs> made a request. Because I made a request <laughs> because I felt like I had more to give them. Not because, I mean, I would have been happy with sons as well, but but I was so happy to have daughters. Well, Kathy, this has been so wonderful. Thanks for sitting down with us and sharing some of your wines. It's been a nice precursor to lunch. I can't wait to go finish these bottles. But The breakfast of champions. Exactly. <laughs> it was wonderful. I've known you both for so long. It's been such a delight. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Kathy Corison for a great episode of Wines That Matter. If you'd like to purchase any of the wines you heard today, be sure to check out Corison.com backslash purchase, or even better, enjoy them in person at the home location of Corison Winery in the beautiful St. Helena. This episode was produced for Kirkco Media and Meadowood Napa Valley by A.J. Mosley. Music by Chris Porter. Hosted by Kelly White and Sarah Bray. Be sure to click the follow button on whatever platform you're listening on so you don't miss another episode. Until then, chin chin.